1: At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male
0: colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. For the week of May 18th, 2021, I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. This week, I'm happy to be joined by James Barragan. James is a politics reporter, recently arrived at the Texas Tribune, Prior to joining the Tribune, uh, he worked as a state house reporter for the Dallas Morning News, among other beats, and has previously reported for the Austin American Statesman in the hometown paper, Los Angeles Times. James, thanks for being here. How are you settling in at the Tribune?
1: Thanks, Jim. I'm happy to be here, settling in well to the Texas Tribune. I came in at a weird time, so I'm just trying to get my feet set as we finish the session, and I'm excited to be here with you on the other side of the Interviewing hey, <laughs> relationship, uh, James
0: and I have talked many times over the years, and it's one of the reasons—one of the many reasons—I'm happy to to have him here. So, let you know, let's start with a little bit of color commentary before you know we get into the politics and and politics nitty gritty. You know, you've been on site at the Capitol uh, this session. We were talking before we started. You know, give us a little sense of the you know the mise en scene. The talk about the mood in the building. In in a very unusual session that started under you know uneven, however un- unevenly applied pandemic conditions, you know then hit by the 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 blackouts after the winter storm. Talk a little bit about the feel in the building.
1: Yeah, it's definitely been a strange session. Um, a lot less people, obviously, because of the pandemic. Um, a lot of a lot less people willing to go to the. Building to testify and say their piece on a story, which I think has affected legislation. I think it has affected the outcome. Uh, you and I talked for a story that I was doing on, on this, but I mean, there's there's a certain there's a certain part of the uh, polar spec uh, the political spectrum that's more likely to go to the Capitol, um, and one that isn't under uh, concerns over COVID. So, in that respects, in terms of public engagement, in t- terms of you know people coming into the building, there's certainly less people. Uh, there's certainly you know less resolutions, less fourth grade classes uh, getting shoutouts from the House or Senate floors. Um, there's just less engagement with the public. Um, I think in terms of how it's affected lawmakers, it, that's also different because they are much more free. You can see them. They're a lot more you know open to being themselves and doing really what they want to do uh, when people are not really watching. <laughs> Um, I think on the House floor, particularly, you know, the the House Speaker Dave Phelan, has had a call order much more than than last session because it, it is sort of like a frat house. Not to uh, offend frat houses, but I mean, it's just it's just it's so loud in there because they're just being you know they're being themselves. They're you know they have the run of the mill there and they're doing uh, the things that they want to do without much oversight. Really, the the, the press has been uh, pretty restricted now. They're allowed back on the House floor, but. Um, it, it has been a bit of a. Free you
0: think for all. that that free for allness and that mood has also kind of fed into, you know, the let the process itself, particularly in the House. I mean, I think it's probably you know less so in the Senate, but you were talking about the House. I mean, the House has been, sure, you know, the House has put out a, you know a high volume of very conservative you know legislation this time to kind of edge into the the substance of this. It, it sounds like I mean, you think those things are related?
1: Yeah, I think you do. Um, there is something to that idea. Uh, I think it's a mixture of that—the sort of free-for-allness—with um, with not much oversight because the press hasn't been there, and the public, frankly, hasn't been there. Um, you know, something that happens all the time are those like public protests. Somebody unveils a sign, or you know, or they have to be removed by DPS troopers, and that hasn't so much happened this session. Uh, which you know, who knows how much that actually affects, but at least people do know that, or the lawmakers know that people are watching and so are a little bit more cognizant uh, of that as they go about the sausage making process. Um, so I think there is something to it. The other thing that there is, is that we've got a new house speaker, Dade Phelan, um, and he has applied a much more laissez-faire um, sort of approach to, um, to how he runs the house. He hasn't really gotten involved and said, here are my priorities, even, you know, those low bill priorities, you know, HB 1 through 20 or 1 through sure. 30, wherever they may be. In prior sessions, the speakers have said, these are my priorities. He said that to some extent, but not really. And he, it's just kind of they're throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And that is definitely the approach that we are seeing on the House floor. And it's also the approach we're seeing in in committees. And we're going to talk a little bit about elections, I think. But the way that elections committee has been run has certainly been, um, you know, less than I think by the book. It's just kind of been surprise after surprise, roller coaster after roller coaster for people following that. Commitment. That's a
0: pretty diplomatic way of putting that. I, I want to get to the election stuff. Just <laughs> <laughs> yes, congratulations on that. Um, You know, I, I want to go back just to the mood of the house, just for one more beat, and particularly the the style of of the speaker and and and. You know, I'm wondering if you think that's, I mean, and you didn't say this, so I don't want to put words in your mouth that, I mean, it's stri- put it this way, it strikes me that that's partially style, but it's also partially a new speaker trying to maintain his position to some extent. And I, you know, I say that, you know, hearing scuttlebutt that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sense I'm hearing in the house that things that sometimes look strange don't look quite as strange if you look at it kind of sideways from the perspective of the speaker trying to keep his coalition, the coalition that put him in the chair together.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, it's kind of hard to say because that's something that I've wrestled with all session 2 I'm not sure who, um, how speaker Dave Feeling is or what he is like as a speaker, because I haven't really seen him, uh, particularly be forceful about anything. It is kind of a will of the House thing, which some people enjoy. It's certainly, uh, conservative Republicans are definitely enjoying it right now. A lot of their priorities are getting kicked out. Um, and so to your point or to your question about whether this is about um, a speaker who is concerned about making sure he has a gavel next session, there might be something to that. I would say that given you know where we are at this point in the session, there's not a whole lot of fighting going on. Um, and that's partic- That's that's because they've passed a lot of those red meat items. So, I mean, what is there left to fight about, you know? So if you're a very socially conservative Republican, I think you're looking at the Speaker and saying, well, he, he pushed through a lot of our stuff. And he wasn't particularly involved. You know, he just kind of let let the will of the House roll. And, and so that's led to that. But to your other question about, like, you know, new Speaker, you know, um, how has that been? I do think in the beginning you could see even when he was talking at the dais, it was, he was a little bit nervous. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, fully used to it. I think now he's a lot more used to it, but I still, you know, the same question for me, who is speaker Dade Phelan? What does he particularly stand for? Mm, I'm not sure. And before, you know, there used to be in the house, there used to be that sort of more moderate approach um, under Joe Strauss even under Dennis Bond, and I think moderate Republicans would have said that, you know, that was the chamber or the place in Texas government where they could see some of that moderation happening, still very Republican policies, uh, but not to the far right wing of the party. Um, This session, it's gone pretty far right wing, and it's been in line, I think, um, in times with the governor, Greg Abbott, and with uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, And even has outflanked Dan Patrick in some situations, like on permitless carry, which was something interesting to see. And so I'm not really sure, um, you know, what his style is yet or who he is. I think that's still um, to be determined um, if he if he comes back for another session as speaker and maybe we'll see him impose himself more. Right now, it certainly was like, let's let them run with it. And, And the House certainly ran with it you know republicans have a majority and they they have certainly gotten a lot of their priorities through that chamber yeah i
0: mean i think in fact you know a lot of the thing you know the way you were describing uh and you know certainly strauss that was part of the was part of the complaints of the people on the farther right wing of the party that you know there is now making them a little more content is too strong a word because I, i i think part of the position is to not be satisfied Um, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting read on that. Um, you know, yeah. I want to talk about elections, but since you mentioned guns and let's, let's knock that out while we're there. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, the maneuvering by Dade Phelan on guns. Talk about that a little bit. What did you see happening there?
1: I don't know that there was a whole lot of maneuvering. I think it was pretty straightforward. (laughs) He's, he's pushed... He's pushed for permitless carry before, so I don't think it was that much of a surprise. But I think even you know senators, even some lawmakers and some activists who are you know guns rights activists who advocate for permitless carry, um, at the beginning of the session, they were like, well, maybe this isn't the session for it. But it quickly became a thing where not only was uh, Representative Schaefer's bill moving through, which is the one that eventually uh, moved through and the one that they're negotiating right now, um, whether they're going to get a deal on, uh, but Representative James White, who has also filed a permitless carry bill and has done so in the past, has, uh, has made his position clear on that. But he was he was named as the chairman of the Public Safety Committee, which would deal with those with those issues. So I think that became pretty clear right away that that was going to get a favorable hearing. Um, and maybe behind the scenes, there were more questions about you know, what exactly that should look like. Um, but multiple bills regarding that topic were moving. And so uh, I think there wasn't a whole lot of maneuvering for speaker feeling on that. He was pretty straightforward about that. Um, and to be fair, I mean, I mean, to, not to be fair, but I mean, just it's easy for him to do it, right? His his district in Beaumont is a pretty conservative district. His voters, I think, are in, in favor yeah. of that. I, I don't want to speak for for him or his voters, but I think pretty likely generally that, that's a district yeah. that's pretty conservative, right? Pretty conservative. And, and they are OK with that kind of thing where he maybe ran into some issues was on the other side, you know, talking about El Paso and 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 Midland-Odessa and those West Texas shootings in 2019 that had a lot of traction in 2019 and have lost it. And so he had responsibilities, particularly to the El Paso delegation, who are his close allies, um, to try to get something done on those issues. Um, and, and I think they have moved out the SB-162 the Lion Try bill, and it remains to be seen whether the governor will sign that. But I think that's the only major uh, gun control or gun violence uh, bill that I've seen really move other than Brooks Landgraf's, you know, statewide uh, active shooter alert system, which is more, more a precaution, I think, sort of guessing that there's not going to be a whole lot yeah. of like- gun yeah, but Yeah,
0: thing. more literally a gun safety measure. I mean, you know, when I said right. maneuvering, I guess I was thinking I was picking up on something you said before- um, vis-a-vis the Senate, because it did seem to put Dan Patrick oh. on the spot.
1: <laughs> and that, right, that, right. that, that, yeah, that yeah.
0: felt to me like a maneuver. <laughs> I, I think oh, it certainly sure. felt yeah, to Lieutenant yeah. Governor like it was a maneuver.
1: And I think that goes back to, yeah, so great point. So I think that goes back to, you know, there's been this intra-fighting between the GOP, right? Going back to when Speaker Phelan was first chosen by the GOP caucus, uh, or I guess he was chosen in a bi- "quote unquote" bipartisan way, um, but uh, when he announced that he had the votes, Alan West, the GOP chairman, called him a traitor and said, "This guy's not conservative enough." So I think you know, looking at this session, mm-hmm. Dave Phelan, particularly with HB nineteen twenty seven, the permanent carry bill, he's saying basically, he and his team um, is basically saying, "You think we're not conservative?" Enough. Well, take have a plateful of this, and buddy. <laughs> he, yeah, and put the ball in Dan Patrick's court, and then Dan Patrick, he had to really maneuver and say, "Oh, here's here's where I am on permitless carry," because he had not really spoken on the issue, and I think his preference was to not not have that conversation. But eventually, you know, the, the political forces are going to uh, impose themselves upon you, and so he was put in a tight spot, and that's basically where we are now, where the two chambers are sort of trying to figure out what that final bill is going to look like. But certainly, I think that shows the intra-party fighting in the GOP. And really, the House has put down its marker and really, I think, made good on Dennis Bonin's promise, uh, the former speaker, that if you stay out of our way, if you let us choose more Republicans and more conservatives, then we're going to get these priorities done. Of course, as you pointed out earlier... They're, those folks are never going to be satisfied, right? No matter how conservative your session is, you can always be more conservative. So that's a little bit of the trap that you've fallen. But we've certainly seen those dynamics play out. Well,
0: and I think the measure of that, you know, is as Josh and I have written in some other places, I mean, the measure of that is in the Republican primaries. And I think that's where a lot of the emphasis is here, you know, along those lines. Then, so, you know, you've written a lot about election security, election integrity, voter suppression. You know, pick your label um, or, or try to avoid all of them um, You know, if you can't, although it's hard when you're actually writing. Um, so let's let, let's talk about that. I mean, kind of what's your what's your sense of what the arc of that has been this session?
1: Well, I, I just I just read a story in the Texas Monthly yesterday about you know how the 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 Democrats you know did some backroom deals there with yeah, the Yeah, R.G. Reckless piece. And, you know, that, was some, that was a well-reported yeah, piece that was
0: pretty nicely done.
1: Right about how they tried to sort of soften the version of the bill that they got from the Senate. And so I think similarly to uh, the permitless carry bill, they're going to try to hash it out in the back and in, in the back rooms um, and try to come up with something that works. Yeah. Um, it certainly I think is going to be less strict than the original version that seems to be the indication from the house but they're sort of on ops you know in, in the on the gun bill the house wants to be stricter right and on the elections bill the house it, wants ma- to be it soft, makes for so interesting
0: bookends interesting. those two issues that way i think
1: definitely so um but no doubt that issue um uh, on voting rights is uh is a priority for uh the republican party particularly for the right wing of the party which as you say is the important piece for them in many ways because that's how you win the primary and in a lot of these districts you win the primary and you you've won the election um, i think just outside of politics if you look at just realistic terms and how much actual impact this will have on people how much this is a necessity for the state the reality is that this isn't really a necessity for the state um, election integrity whatever you want to call it You know, voter fraud happens. I think that we in the press sometimes do a poor job of talking about it, Um, uh, and and it makes us easy targets. But voter fraud happens, but it happens on such minuscule scales that it can't really affect um, big national races like the presidential race, which is what former President Donald Trump uh, was claiming that it had affected. It affects local races. Um, the big one that you know, uh, Attorney General Paxton had was this little race in East Texas that I think Total had like two thousand votes, yeah. um, and I think recently they found another one in, in Denton where uh, a mayoral candidate was trying to stuff ballots into grossly unsuccessfully. Like by
0: the way, <laughs> well,
1: the whole point is in, like in that if case. you're being caught red-handed, if you're yeah. being caught red-handed, yeah. and that's a whole it just shows you how small scale and how difficult it is. So I realistically, I don't think it it would impact a whole lot of races here but there's no doubt that it's a it's a red meat political issue that a lot of the base for one reason or another i would say for nefarious reasons is fired up about and they've certainly dedicated a lot of time uh and when you say
0: for nefarious reasons you mean basically are you you're referring to like the trump influence
1: Sure, yeah, the Trump influence, the whole idea that, you know, the the previous presidential election was, you know, was not decided or the counting was off, which I, I don't think that there's
0: evidence of that. You know, I, I, um, I was interested in the way that you kind of led in that, in this discussion with, you know, look, you know, w- w- the point that sometimes in the press, you don't get the kind of, you know, acknowledgement of the minuscule incidents, however they are, but that there is voter fraud, right. you know, I, I'm wondering like how, how you, how hard it is. you How hard do you find it to manage staying even handed in this? I mean, you know, we've talked about it a lot in, in the shop, Josh and I, I think talked about it on the podcast, this podcast a couple weeks ago that, you know, I, I think it's difficult to maintain the point that, you know, both Republicans and Democrats approach this issue from a mixture of principled and self-interested positions. And that doesn't make them equivalent for the kind of reasons you're talking about, that, you know, the empirical argument for voter fraud is just not right. there at the national or, you know, even in terms of outcomes at the state level. Yet, you know, both, both sides have a dog in this fight and and use different kind of ethical arguments to kind of promote their position. Right.
1: Right. For me, it was interesting on the uh, voter fraud stuff. I I wrote a whole story about it, how it's difficult to even really have the discussion. Right. Uh, Because uh, one of the things about covering SB seven in the Senate was anytime a Democrat would bring up, you know, how often is this happening? Do we have any specific cases here in Texas? And uh, Brian Hughes, the bill's author would say, well, you know, Senator, how how many, how much voter fraud is enough? You know, or how, how much, how much voter fraud is enough? Basically saying like, one, one case of voter fraud is one too many, um, which is the same argument that Ken Paxson has made. The reality is, sure, you can be such a purist about it that way, um, but we don't live in a perfect world. And even if there was an election of 100 people, I, I bet you one person <laughs> would mess up and then do it the wrong way. Or there would be another person who tried try to cheat or something, you know, that's just the way, you know, we live in a human world. It's not a perfect world. And there are going to be instances. Um, but it's, it's difficult to have an empirical conversation, an evidence-based conversation when people zone in on just the, the small number of cases and say, well, and that's just the ones we know right You, know? <laughs> you, you open it up to paranoia. so it is very it's very difficult. I've really tried on my end um, around that subject to, to point out you know that there are these cases and and every time we cover them we say, you know it's, it's small you know that yeah. you know, like this 2,000 vote race. And they're not going to be very likely to um, affect uh, larger races like statewide or presidential races, just because the sheer number of votes just it it wouldn't work. Like there's that would be a massive conspiracy that people would find <laughs> because it, it's it would be very difficult to pull off. So we try to point that out, and I've also tried to point out sometimes where to your point about the Democrats, they have reasons for doing the things that they want to do. Right, they have reasons for wanting to have multiple mail ballot drop-off sites, which I think just empirically, I think is a good idea. You want to give people the the um, the opportunity to vote as easily as possible. But then there's other things like unsolicited mail ballots, which to the point about voter fraud can lead to problems if you're sending uh, mail ballots to incorrect addresses. And so they want as many votes as possible, but there are issues that come with that kind of stuff. Right. And I wrote a story about Harris County and how basically they poke the bear and are now dealing with the consequences. And I think there are some people in the Harris County elections department that are not my biggest fans, but nonetheless, I have to point it out, you know, th- there are political consequences. All of it is politics. And so, um, that's sort of how I deal with it. Just try to tell it from all sides and try to be fair. And, uh, just be as clear as possible when, when I'm reporting.
0: You know, I, I think it's interesting that the the arguments have have pivoted a bit on the Republican side. I mean, I think, you know, I think we are hearing a little bit less now about there's this widespread unreported voter fraud and hearing more of what you were, you know, two things that you were talking about. One, the idea that, no, you know, any fraud is intolerable. We have to have, a, you know, a a kind of zero tolerance policy which is kind of empirically an empty set well
1: and the thing is the thing is too that you know it 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 is kind of true uh you got to give republicans credit when when they say this isn't part of a big national movement we've been doing this which is true like texas are the ogs at this (laughs) like they've been doing this for several you know i remember covering those bills i remember covering sb9 from senator hughes that so so they do certainly have a point um, I think the political reasons for doing it remain the same. And I don't know if we're going to talk about this, but like on, on the other hand, real things that we need like actual, um, a lot of attention on, like the electricity grid and like the funding of public schools, those things have not gotten the attention um, this this session.
0: Well, yeah. One of your competitors at the Statesman, uh, Madeline Meckelberg, you might've heard of her, had tweeted earlier <laughs> that state affairs moved out SB3 earlier today, the 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 bill on the 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 electricity infrastructure bill essentially so they're gonna they're gonna try but i you know what they wind up doing i think is 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 an open question at this point
1: yeah i think and i think when consumers and and rate payers realize that they're getting stuck with with the bill um you know there's not going to be any way to say you know all Texans on ERCOT and the PUC, like that doesn't, yeah. Do I mean, you know, as you my, as you know, bill.
0: we pulled pretty extensively on that now. And we did a poll with our, some colleagues at the UT Energy Institute in May, asked more questions in April. And as you, you know, as you get to the more sophisticated measures, you know, the number mm-hmm. of people that don't have an opinion on these things, because it's too complicated. I mean, yep, you know, look, if you were, Probably there for some of that. If you were watching those hearings the week after it all happened, it was pretty clear that part of what a bunch of the policymakers were trying to figure out was just, you know, to put not to put too sharp a point on it, like what the hell was going on and how it all worked, because it's enormously complex. And I think, in terms of, you know, ratepayers paying, you know, as soon as you start saying, yeah, well, we're going to securitize this. And then once we securitize it, well, you've lost much of the public where you go, hey, there's going to be no more, you know, no more foreigners on, no more out of state or, 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 you know, non-U.S. <laughs> yeah. citizens on the ERCOT board, you know, 80% of Texans more or less are think that's a great idea. That's, that's going right, to help, right. right? So, yeah, no, I think, you know, and that raises an interesting question. And I was going to, you know, if we had time, and I'm just going to take the time to do that. I mean, you talked about how we're not seen, you know, action, you know, at least frontline action on the electricity thing. And I think they would say, look, we spent a lot of time on it. We're just not there yet um, to give them some benefit of the doubt Um, or education, other things. And we did see a lot of action in particular in education in 2018. So I'm wondering, because you've covered elections so much in the interim, I mean, do you kind of see this? And I I hate this phrase. And if I can't believe I'm going to use it because I Criticize my friends for using it, but is is there kind of an elections have consequences piece here? But maybe Uh, a negative consequence in this sense.
1: Well, certainly. (laughs) Well, I I don't think it's negative for Republicans and conservatives who are getting their priorities. And I think it's very, very positive for them. Uh, But certainly, I mean, uh, the Republicans, um, you know, ran their campaigns. They wanted to keep their majority. Um, They wanted to have uh, Texas be a business-friendly state. Um, and it certainly has been a business-friendly state. And I think the other big thing that they ran on was like, we're not going to defund the police. And they certainly have stopped or are looking like they're going to stop that from happening. So I think they ran on those priorities. And, yeah, do, ele- elections do have consequences, and they have gotten those priorities so far they've advanced them. And we'll see what happens in the next two sessions here. Anything can still happen, I guess. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I, uh, I don't the think defunding the, the police is
0: probably going to make a comeback. <laughs> you know, I mean, one might argue that they right. promised to do something that was not actually happening, but that's, you know, perhaps.
1: But they've certainly, they've certainly been successful. And yes, yes, the elections have had consequences and they've they certainly delivered on the things that they promised. Yeah. Them. I
0: mean, I, I seem to remember you and I talking probably in early 2019 about, you know, in a lot of ways, there was kind of fear stalking the land because of the the close call that some people had in the 2018 election. You fast forward mm-hmm. to 2020, you get you know, pretty convincing effort by Republican candidates to hold the line. And all of a sudden, you know, I think with some of the other variables that we've talked about, a new speaker, et cetera, but you're seeing a, a very different session in 2021 than you saw in 2019. Yeah,
1: And I think Democrats are kicking themselves for not going out and campaigning and, you know, leading up to last November because, you know, the 2022 cycle doesn't look any better.
0: Yeah. I mean, I you know, I've got in a running argument with Scott Braddock about just how big a uh, a factor of the non campaigning thing was. And I think it was a factor. I also think, you know, the, the worm turned in a way that I think Democrats didn't quite anticipate. And it, the campaigning piece yeah. certainly didn't help. Although I think we still need to figure out a way to empirically kind of look at that. You know, I, I want to ask you, okay, one, uh, a last kind of wild card question. Although, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about these issues. You've covered the legislature and the, in state politics a lot. You know, what do you what's what do you wish you could convey to people that you can't quite get in print or that you can't, you know, that would that would explain something to people or, or tell a story to your readers about the way that the legislative legislative politics work that you can't find a way to cover?
1: Well, I, I think overall it's more a political question, but I wish I could convey to readers and to people just how badly these guys try to duck uh, news outlets, uh, real local news outlets like the Texas Tribune, the Dallas Morning News, Austin America, the people that they uh, really are beholden to, right? And they're only on like Fox News, or if you're a Democrat, you only want to be on MSNBC and those national ones, because quite frankly, not not any you know offense or shade to them, but they, they don't care about your property taxes. They don't care about the local issues, right, that we care about. And so we we're very well versed in them. So they can throw out some cockamamie statement about property taxes or the border, and we're the people who know and can call them out on, you know, that's actually not right or that's incorrect. You know, the national uh, outlets have a different idea. They have a different audience. They have different issues that they want to cover. We're the ones that know about the property tax and all that stuff, and they purposefully avoid us. Um, and I think that is not a good way for a democracy or a representative government to run. And uh, I wish I could call them out more on that. Because also, I just think that's chicken. Like, <laughs> I just think they should they should answer questions. So that's the one thing I would like to uh, convey to, to re- I wish I could convey more. Do you
0: think that's gotten worse in the time you've been a reporter? You've, have you been doing this, not to make you say exactly how old you are, but you've been doing this for about how long?
1: Uh, I've been going uh, nine okay. years, professionally, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's so almost 10 years. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's certainly gotten worse as more and more, um, just new startup outlets have also come out that aren't that are questionable uh, on whether they are actually uh, objective journalism. Um, and as talk radio and places like Fox News have gotten stronger and stronger, um, yeah, there's been less and less opportunity for traditional objective journalism to to get those shots. Um, so yeah it's a troubling, uh,
0: okay, well, good. We'll leave it on that up note. Um, (laughs) James, thanks a lot for being here. I really appreciate you taking time. I know you're busy and you, you've got news to cover so much appreciated. Thanks to you. Thanks to our audio staff at the liberal arts development studio in the college of liberal arts at UT Austin. As always, you can find this podcast and others usual outlets and at the Texas Politics Project website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Again, many thanks, James, and thanks to our listeners, and we'll talk to you next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.